Steeple Rock Partners is proud to sponsor this edition of the Real Estate Time Machine podcast. My strategy personally is I'm hyper-diversified. So I'm in over 70 different LLCs right now. And I, I want to say that despite that, I actually find that multifamily is probably one of my, my top favorite ones for the next 10 years for predictability. Our guest today is a legend in syndication investing. He left his corporate job at Disney in 2007 and never looked back. Jeremy Roll is a full-time investor with a focus on creating cash flow. In our time together, Jeremy explains what it means to live out an abundance mindset. Any chance you get to sit at the feet of a mentor like Jeremy is time well spent. Jeremy, tell me a little bit about your backstory. I'd like to get a good sense of your personal and professional background. Sure. So um, I am actually originally from Montreal, Canada, where I grew up. I spent about half my life there now. And uh, I moved down to Philadelphia in uh, 1998 to do an MBA over at uh, University of Pennsylvania, which is the Wharton School. And then I graduated there in 2000, um, came out to um, L.A., and which is actually where I've been ever since. And I uh, spent a number of years in the corporate world in L.A. before um, finally getting out of the corporate world from cash flow. So um, I basically have worked for some large companies like Disney headquarters, Toyota headquarters, and some others. So I was kind of like middle-level manager in corporate America. And eventually in 2002, I started investing in alternative investments like real estate and other things. And, and eventually a few years later, that cash flow got me out of the corporate world, which happened in 2007. So uh, I've actually been a kind of a full-time passive cash flow investor. I call myself since 2007. And so, so the date we're recording is it's been about 12 years now. Uh, but I've been uh, investing in alternative investments like uh, real estate since 2002. So it's been about 17 years. Um, and that's, uh, that's my quick background. So, okay, that's interesting to me because a lot of people would say Disney or a company like that, especially Disney, would be a dream job because you get to use your creativity, your imagination. I mean, it's a place people want to end up, but for you, it was a place where you didn't want to end up. So tell me a little bit about that. What made you decide that the corporate world wasn't the best fit for Jeremy Roll, but you wanted to go your own direction? Yeah, you know, that's a really good point you make, and it's an interesting way to look at it. So first of all, I spent over 10 years in the corporate world between my experience in Canada and then in the U.S., um, and even pre- and post-MBA. Um, I would say that there is no doubt that when I had that job at Disney at the time, it was fantastic for my resume, you know, worked for Toyota headquarters, great for the resume, and had some really good experiences there, worked for big companies, really interesting brands. Um, but the challenge for me is that I, I just found myself for years sitting behind a desk in the corporate world, and just saying to myself, like, this is a good job, but I am nowhere near to maximizing my potential. Like, what should I be focused on? It was, you know, I was like, I had the, the old problem where, like, I was one of 10,000 people in the organization. I was only going to be able to contribute so much to the organization. And by definition, in the way the corporate works often is you're, you are constrained, right? You're constrained by your level and you're constrained by your managers. And you're, there's a lot of constraints. And I think that those constraints were also kind of, you know, a negative force on me, so to speak. Um, so... The struggle I had was, frankly, I didn't know what path to go down, but I just knew this wasn't the right fit for me at the time. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that and eventually discovered that investing was like a really good fit for me. I have a passion for it. I kind of knew it at the time. I, I actually, the irony is that I remember being in the Disney office and just like looking at the stock market every day and just thinking about investing and talking to people about investing. And, but it didn't occur to me, okay, this is what I should be doing full time. And so Eventually, I actually got out of the corporate world accidentally just because I didn't really explain that. But I had a last draw moment with my manager at Toyota headquarters, um, from my perspective anyway, and I decided to leave. 
And at the time, uh, I was able to leave from the cash flow, but I did not actually take the strategy of wanting to leave the corporate world and building up the cash flow to do so, which a lot of people I talk to are on that path or have that thought. Um, I actually wanted the paycheck and the cash flow, and I was developing the cash flow from the real estate in the background because I thought it was a better solution for me for predictability and where my retirement account would be in 10, 20, 30 years versus the stock market. And the stock market is, you know, I kind of got out of that, I started to get out of that after the dot-com crash in 2001. So long story short is, I guess, I didn't have a plan to get out of the corporate world necessarily. That happened accidentally thanks to the cash flow and not purposefully. Um, and I also did not feel comfortable in the corporate world given the constraints and everything else I mentioned. See, that, okay, that's fascinating to me because that gets to a mindset, a difference in mindset, because I think a lot of people would say the corporate world gives me the platform to use my skills and abilities, but you felt constrained and limited by it and eventually moved out of it because you didn't feel like you were, as you said, maximizing your potential. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, and you know, you make a good point. I think a lot of what bothered me about the corporate world is the politics, and I'm sure a lot of people could relate to that, right? Even if they're in a small company. And um, I am the kind of guy that, you know, I was willing to do the work in the corporate world. And to me, I thought I'm a very mathematical numbers guy. And to me, the proportionality between, you know, work and output and getting promoted and all that kind of thing was obvious that it just didn't work like that. And I hated the concept of, you know, um, it's funny. I love networking. That's actually what I do full time now as a passive investor to try to find opportunities and talk to other investors, et cetera. In the corporate world, I hated the concept because it was so artificial. You would do it to build relationships for the purpose of having a good standing so that you give the work you did would be potentially recognized and compensated accordingly, at least in my opinion. And a lot of the, you know, it depends on who your manager is, but often that's the case. Right. And so it's, you're doing the networking for a very different reason. And for me, like, for the wrong reasons instead of the right reasons that I do now. And hmm. so, yeah, it was, um, I had a lot of challenges being in that environment. And all that being said, those are great companies, they're good fits for many different people. My resume built up really nicely. You know, I, I don't have complaints, it's just more in retrospect, you know, it's not really the right fit for me. Right. You know, in your audience that you're talking to today, or I mean, you know, there, it's full of people in that situation that are working a corporate job and are wanting to make the move eventually to being a full-time passive investor. What are some of your thoughts on how you can accelerate that process? Yeah, that's a good question. So I had the problem myself where um, I did not have enough savings built up to just go and do kind of the typical formula of like, okay, I'm going to target 10% average cash flow per year, and I'm just going to use some random numbers, right? So say that I had a million dollars, which I didn't, and say that, um, you know, at 10%, then that could generate $100,000 here. That was enough for me to live off of, boom. You know, you know, it'd take a number of years to find the right venues to place that capital over time very carefully. And you, you can potentially make that happen. And that's a great plan. I hear people having that plan all the time. The challenge I had, and by the way, if you're in that position, you're listening to this, that could be a very viable plan. I've actually seen people over the years get out of the corporate world with that type of plan. And it does work, right? The problem I have is I didn't have the capital. And so what I did was that I started to invest in different uh, types of opportunities. It wasn't all real estate where the cash flow was higher, but the risk either was a little bit higher or um, it has to be reinvested quickly. Um, in other words, um, I don't want to get too complicated on this, but you know, it wasn't like you invest in a piece of real estate and then it's sold in 10 years and you have a lot of money come at the end. There was like not much residual, but there was a lot of upfront cash flow going forward, like equipment leasing, et cetera. And so I ended up compounding a lot of my investments to build up a lot more capital more quickly. 
So I look for more higher cash on cash returns to accelerate the compounding, um, which I don't necessarily recommend for everyone because it comes with a bit of a higher risk in certain scenarios, but it also pays off really well if you're careful with it. So that's what I chose to do. I ended up with a mix of kind of low, medium and high risk stuff. And the medium and high risk, higher risk stuff ended up paying off as far as me being able to, to build up the snowball more quickly. Um, and so I don't have a specific recommendation for anybody except for the fact that you could look at alternatives to just doing regular type of real estate, for example, and compounding your investing more quickly. What are some of the alternatives? Uh, I'm curious. So what were some of those early deals that you perceived as a higher risk, but ended up really paving the way for you to be a passive investor now? And the part two in that question would be, what kind of investments do you look at right now outside of real estate to accelerate your finances? Yeah, sure. So, um, so let me, let me, um, let me talk about the kind of, uh, the first question first, which is, um, you know, I'm going to give you an example of actually what I really did in, in real life to help Absolutely. accelerate the cash flow while I was in the corporate, which is, um, I did some, so a friend of mine had a web hosting company. Um, this is before like Amazon cloud where you can just kind of use that service. And so he had to build up, he would on behalf of companies, build them private, their own private networks or servers. And essentially he was growing very quickly, very successful entrepreneur. Um, I knew his family very well. They were very high net worth. And he brought me a lease one day, I remember, and he said, look, I'm about to lease this computer server and I'm building up a whole server farm um, from X and Y leasing company. And the interest rate is 28% and it's a three-year lease and there's a 5% residual. And so the cash on cash return, meaning the cash you got back every year you put in was about 50%. Okay. Oh. So he said, he said, like, I have, this is the rate that I have to pay. I'm a small company. This is the going rate. So if you want to do this for me instead, you can make the interest. And I said, that's interesting. So the challenge with that opportunity is that the equipment you buy, you basically lease to him, is highly depreciating, right? Computer service depreciate. Everybody knows that computer chips are replaced every six to 12 months. You know, your box is going to be worth 10% of its value in a year or two or three. So highly depreciating. So um, I did, you know, so long story short is over the course of eight years, I did about 60 leases for him. And if you can imagine compounding 50% cash on cash with 50% cash on cash, it really adds up if you put a, a good amount of money into it. And yeah. I got very lucky and I had that contact. It was a question of me making a bet on him. You know, he was kind of personally guaranteed by his family. Um, and um, that's an example of what I did that really accelerated my, um, you know, network to be able to then rotate that into lower risk stuff over time. Right. Um, one good example of how I would, how I continue to do that. And to be totally honest with you, I'm very low risk guy in general. And so, um, most of what I look for is not of that type of, uh, uh, return or, uh, type of, uh, profile, but, um, I do like to do higher cash flowing stuff that I can compound more quickly when it comes up. And so right now I'm actually, I've been invested in ATM machines, um, for about 11 and a half years. These are the automated teller machines that you might find at Joe's corner liquor store with an operator I found in 2008. I have truly averaged about 35% cash on cash a year for 11 and a half years now. Um, and um, I've also been able to compound it to more machines, for example. So that also has really accelerated the, the cash on cash. But generally, and that's a real life example, but generally, I love to be in a more stabilized, highly diversified tenant base, possibly commercial real estate or residential real estate opportunity um, where I'm looking for predictability. Stock market because of the volatility and the lack of predictability where my retirement account would be, would be in 10, 20, 30 years after the dot-com crash, I was just fed up. And um, so now I go into stuff where I'm looking for the type of predictability that I go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed because mm -hmm. I live off the cash flow and I'm, you know, dependent on the cash flow. 
So I'm, I'm giving you answers. You're asking the questions, definitely answering stuff. But generally, I don't invest in the type of stuff I'm talking about because I look for more predictable, lower risk. Right. And, and let's talk about that. I mean, you've been investing in real estate, I think, since 2002. It seems to me, and this has been one of my concerns, is some of the most, some of the loudest voices and most visible people in multifamily right now have only been out it for like five years, six years. Whereas you have quite a bit more longevity and, and in my opinion, a lot more perspective because time gives you perspective. I'd like to hear, first of all, what attracted you to multifamily and then your opinion on where we are in the cycle when it comes to multifamily right now. Yeah. So first of all, I will say that um, I invest across many different things. I'm, my strategy personally is I'm hyper diversified. So I'm in over 70 different LLCs right now. I've easily been in over 100 over the past 17 years. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to say that despite that, I actually find that multifamily is probably one of my, my top favorite ones for the next 10 years for predictability. And I say this because, you know, I, I think there's going to be a downturn in the next year, just statistically. And if and when there is one, people are going to have still have a place to live. It's a lower cost place, way to live potentially than, than housing, obviously, to own a home. And in the right areas with a lot of demand, I think it's you know going to continue to flourish. So I really like multifamily. Um, I love the fact that you know it can be diversified tenant-based. I typically invest in 100 units or more. And so if you're in a highly occupied, say 99% occupied 100-unit building, a tenant leaves. For someone like me, not a problem. I still be able to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow. Not much has changed, right? We talked like I talked about before. So um, I really love those types of aspects to multifamily. I think people can also understand multifamily a little bit better. They can relate to it more, more so, for example, a lot of people that are mobile home park or self-storage, et cetera. So that relatability also, uh, I think, makes it very popular. Um, and um, I just there's a lot, I think, to like about it. I will say that I am very concerned about that asset class and any asset class right now at this point in the market because I think that everything is overpriced. I literally, without exception, um, that I can think of. And so, you know, at market value today, I think everything's overpriced. And that means I'm sitting mostly on the sidelines, not fully. There's always unique opportunities, but I've been sitting mostly on the sidelines now, actually since 2017 in anticipation of a downturn, waiting for cap rates and prices to adjust. And then I will definitely be jumping back into multifamily and a, and a few other asset classes very strongly. And what are you going to what are you going to look for? What are some of the indicators that would tell you it's time to jump back and get off the sidelines? You know, I don't have a specific indicator. I think that the first thing to understand is that real estate tends to be much more slowly than the stock market, right? So stock market could go up and down X percent per day, literally. Uh, real estate is slow to move as far as the buyers and sellers eventually coming to agreement on a price shift, and so. Um, what I found is that, you know, it probably takes a couple of years after a market starts to go down until it really troughs. So once, so what I'm looking for more so is hints of an economic downturn, looking at the stock market coming down, because that affects consumer sentiment, which then affects consumer spending, which makes up 70% of the economy roughly in the U.S., which then spills over and causes a recession, right, or it leads to a recession. So long story short is that um, as far as jumping back in, I would probably wait a year or two to watch the adjustment in pricing. And during that time, if I find unique deals that are below market, even though market is shifting down, I might take advantage of those. But um, I, otherwise, it's, it's even safer to wait a couple of years until prices stabilize before you jump back in. And so I, I guess the answer to your question is, you know, if you wait until things adjust down and then stabilize uh, roughly, then you know you're kind of probably in it at the right time. But there's always opportunities out there, any part of the cycle, including now and including while it's going down. 
And so I would, I'm not going to just sit on the sidelines once it starts going down, but I am going to look for unique pricing as it goes down to try to protect myself from a further decline. And then once it stabilizes, then you know you're in a really good spot. You know, you mentioned to me that there's a difference between abundance mentalities and scarcity mentalities. I'd like for you to expand on that. What exactly did you mean in that comment? Yes. And that comes up a lot in, in this conversation with me because I'm just a huge believer in all that. So to me, um, the concept of abundance is that, you know, we're all in this together. We're all trying to network with each other. Um, it's, it's almost the opposite of like hiding a deal you may have or that, that you know, you're afraid someone's going to get access to you or whatnot. It's, the concept that um, everyone's in it together as a passive real estate investor or just investor in alternative investments, um, I, like to me, investing like that is a team sport. I mean, every time I invest in something, it's always through networking uh, or for the vast majority of opportunities. Most of them are not the publicly marketed. I have to find them through networking. And so the concept of abundance and offering to refer people or help people, um, not being worried about someone going around you, for example, um, not that it doesn't happen, but it's just so rare. Um, and just having the, the concept, the, kind of the open mind to um, not to worry about those types of things and to try to help other people versus trying to get as much as possible for yourself, negotiating every penny out of a deal, um, you know, keeping things close to the vest. All, I consider these, the scarcity all to be synonymous with those types of thoughts. Um, and so, um, by the way, I'm just giving you my own philosophy. There may be people who disagree and that's okay, right? Everyone can operate whatever the way they want, but Absolutely. I tend to try to operate. Yeah. I tend to try to operate at abundance and actually probably more importantly even is that I try to operate in the same, I try to find people who are under the same philosophy and I'll give you a great example. I actually was trying to negotiate. Um, I have an investor group and I was trying to negotiate a opportunity for my group that was assisted living. And I just spent a month doing this and realized that the operator was asking for too much, too many fees and the wrong splits for investors that I didn't think was really fair. And the funny thing is if they come back to me in a week from now and say, you know what, we did some more research, you're right, um, you, we should go with your structure. The problem I'm going to have with that is the philosophy that they weren't operating out of abundance to begin with. They were operating more of a scarcity. And at a, as a result, I'm afraid because I'm not the same philosophy as them, that might cause other problems in the future and other similar decisions or anything, other decisions that are not at all remotely to do with like, you know, the splits, but that just tell me that they're trying to maximize things for themselves. And so um, that's a good example. And I just try to stay away from it. That's what I'm trying. I'm just trying to stay on the same page with other people on the abundance side. You know, that's interesting to me that you said that because in the example that you use, the people come back to you in a week wanting to renegotiate and now wanting to, you know, connect with you in this deal, but they're doing so out of a scarcity mentality still. They don't want to lose the deal. It's not that their mentality was everybody can win on this thing. It's they don't want to lose the deal. So you're right. They're shaking the hand with you based off of a scarcity mentality to move forward. Yeah. And, you know, and I have a similar example, actually. It's a good point you make. And I have a similar example where some Sometimes I'll see a large fund that will start off in a certain structure. Um, and I've, I've looked at so many deals over the years, thousands, that I, I look at the structure and say, these guys are operating of scarcity. Like, they're going to have to change their structure at some point. They're not going to be able to raise all the funds. And inevitably, a couple months later, the structure changes. And now it actually might be in line with what I would look for, but there's no way I'm going to look at it uh, for the exact same reason. Um, and so that's another good example of what happens when someone has that same mentality. So you've described yourself to me as a handshake guy, someone who does business off handshake. You, you could open you up to being taken advantage of, right? So there's got to be certain things you're looking for in partnerships. Yeah, you know, the, obviously 
like everybody else, if I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to work with somebody, um, I'll end up with a gut feel. And that's through a lot of analysis, a lot of due diligence, and maybe even background checks and other things. And so um, if I do a handshake with somebody based on the gut feel being very positive for them, and then they either go around me or something happens, which, you know, and really I can only think of it happened like twice to me in the past decade probably, mm-hmm. um, which is not very many times considering how many things I'm involved in. Um, I, I actually write that off as two things. One is, okay, well, that's going to come back around to them. It's karma. And two is, this is a very small community. And so uh, I do a ton of networking. I know a lot of operators, a lot of investors, et cetera. And I just feel like that's going to catch up with them because of the size of the community. Right. And so I, I actually have, it, it really bothers me because I'm very principled, but the bottom line is that that's kind of the, the, um, my thinking behind why I'm willing to do a deal on a, on a handshake. Not to say I don't have contracts. I do have contracts in certain situations, but the right. philosophy of doing a deal on a handshake is really absolutely like in line with what I do. You're clearly very analytical, very careful, very measured. I'm curious, what are some of the metrics and things that you look for in both real estate and non-real estate investments? Like what, what gets your attention or what is it you're evaluating for? Sure. I mean, I can actually answer that quite succinctly. If you want me to share my investment, my investing targets with you, is that probably a good yeah, way to ta- answer that? Absolutely. Share your targets and, and some of the reasons why those are the things you're targeting. Sure. So I'm going to give you my targets. I want to give you the disclaimer that as this, this cycle has progressed, um, the targets become more unrealistic and they're currently completely unrealistic. So if anyone is listening and saying, how is he finding that today? The answer is I'm not typically. Okay. And then I also want to reserve the right to change my targets after the cycle resets because I'm going to have to reevaluate depending on interest rates, cap rates, and other things, you know, where, where it lands and whether this is realistic going forward. But for this entire cycle between 2009 and now. So um, I, um, now keep in mind, I'm a stabilized cash flow investor. So what I do is I target, say, an 80 to 100% occupied stabilized um, building. And I typically is going to be outside of California where I live for higher cap rates and higher cash flow. I tend to invest in a class B building um, in a kind of A minus or B area. Um, and um, like I mentioned before, the profile is that it's stabilized and I want to go see tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed. So that's going to typically arise from a diversified tenant base. So depending on the asset class, there's a certain number of lots or tenants or spaces or, uh, you know, that I'm looking for. Um, and I'll just give you some very quick examples. You know, self-storage, definitely over 300 units and preferably over five to 800 units. Mobile home parks, over 75 lots, um, uh, apartments, over 100 units. Uh, and then, you know, so you kind of get the idea, right? Um, and I can go into other asset classes too. Um, I typically target a, a projected cash flow net to investors of 9% year one and a projected cash flow average annualized, say across, let's say, a 10-year holding time. So on average, about 11% per year uh, projected net to investors. Um, and... Um, what else can I tell you? I mean, those are some of the starting points. Now, do I have exceptions? Yes, especially if it could be um, a mobile home park has a lower expense ratio. I can go with a lower occupancy rate than 80% and still hit the cash flow target and still be comfortable in that asset class because of lower overhead. Um, so there are some exceptions, but those are generally the starting point. And so if you're looking to back into like a 9% cash flow projected net to investors year one in an asset um, like a real true class B apartment deal, for example, right now, um, you know, that class B apartment deal might probably be a market, secondary market, something like five and a half to 6%, give or take 50 basis points. Right. And so um, 
if you back into that with today's lending and you look at splits and preferred returns, you're not going to get me to 9% year one. So it's not really realistic right now. But what I like about my cash flow targets and why I continue to hold to them is because um, I feel like it's one way that allows me to get keep out of trouble in investing in an asset that becomes too expensive in a cycle where it wasn't too expensive before, earlier in the cycle, but it is now because it can't hit my cash flow target. And to me, the risk reward is the same, meaning that there isn't less risk in me investing in an apartment building in the exact same location with the exact same operator today that there was six years ago. It's just that it's more expensive today, right? People are paying a higher multiple of income. And so those cash flow targets are keeping me away from overpaying for something because the multiple is too high and it doesn't support the cash flow that it used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that works across all the asset classes. And, um, and so if you have a cash flow target in a specific asset class, it can kind of you know, make you have a firm cutoff, which can be very helpful. By the way, I want to point something out that's very important that I didn't point out, which is that you didn't hear me mention anything about a target ROI or IRR, right? And no, so, no. Yeah. Um, right. And the reason why I didn't talk about that is because I'm a heavy cash flow investor because I depend on the cash flow and I look for stability. Yes. So when you find a deal that can hit that 9 and 11% metric, it, the ROI is going to end up kind of be, the targeted or the projected ROI will line up. In other words, it'll be what I need it to be, which is typically 15% to 18%, that type of thing. If you find the right cash flow level, because the rest of it typically falls to, which is typical inflation um, assumptions and stuff. So um, I don't, to me, I actually focus very heavily on the cash flow because that's my objective. And I don't worry about the total returns because they tend to fall in place if I find the right profile deal from the cash flow side, if that makes sense. It's therapeutic for me to hear a guy like you has a couple of bad deals in his bag. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of the best example for you. Um, I, um, all right. Well, so it, 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 is it okay if I share kind of a two, three minute story here? Yeah, please do. Okay. So, um, I, I this, the reason why I want to share this story with you is because it's got a, a few really interesting points to it and some key learnings. And it, I think it was a really good example. So in 2008, um, I actually was, predicting a eventual downturn like I am right now. It just seemed like the cycle was long. And uh, I still had no issue with investing in this property. It was a 308-unit, I think, apartment building. Um, across First property across from a state university in Michigan. Experienced uh, um, student housing operator. They owned 16 other properties. they done very well with them. And um, I was excited because I said to myself, look, statistically, when, people, when there's a recession, people tend to go back to school. So there's going to be probably continued demand it's a very, you know, high in demand school, good location. So everything checked the box. I had no issue or concern going through the downturn with the property. Um, and so we got it at a great price and everything was fine. We were like 99 or hundred percent occupied for the first few years. And um, I think it was 2011 or 12 came along. And in the spring, um, the uh, operator gets a notice and actually every tenant got a notice from the city that said, um, just to let everybody know, um, we have to close the bridge to campus after school ends for repairs during the summer because we can't fix the bridge during the winter season because of the, the temperatures. But don't worry. Um, we know you'll have to go back to school next year, so we'll have it all done in time for the school year. And, of course, what happened is that some students got really concerned that the bridge wouldn't be open in time for school, and they couldn't take the risk of actually living there. And so long story short is that the occupancy rate went from about 100% to about 60 which interestingly enough would have been okay and would have covered our loan and everything else just barely, but it would have been fine 
had it not been for the fact that we had assumed a loan in the, the way that the deal was structured that was actually due that fall. Um, and when it came time to appraise the property to refinance the loan, um, they were appraising it at 65% occupancy rate, which wasn't going to work to actually cover the initial loan. And so the other interesting part of this is that the bank seemed to get a wind of the fact that we had this like unusual one-time event. And rather than extend the loan for a year, which would have been quite a common thing to do, they, I think they decided not to do that to take the property back because it was a lot more valuable to them than the actual uh, loan at the time. And so they ended up foreclosing. And it's actually the only foreclosure I've, I think I've ever been in. Um, and so um, here's the thing. Um, that operator felt horribly, was very high net worth, actually owned some of the other properties without investors at all. And after this happened, not only did they lose money on a partial recourse loan, but they actually, without anybody asking, and actually without any legal obligation to do so, decided to transfer everybody's interest into another property they owned 100% themselves that was the first property across another state, uh, from another state university in Texas. And so we, it was about a one-year transition. We got no cash flow in the meantime. And then uh, they had some tax issues to resolve in terms of the transfer of shares and everything else and legal. Eventually, we just got into that new property. We're cash flowing. I'm actually still in that opportunity today, um, and it's doing really well. Every year, it's been like 100% occupied. And so there's a lot of lessons to be learned in that, okay? So lesson number one is there's always, like, this was like what I call the 1% risk, right? I can tell you 20 ways a, a deal can go bad in these 1% risks, right? You know, fire burns the building down. Um, and insurance doesn't want to pay, you have to sue them for years, um, and then you don't win, okay? There, there are so many 1% risks I can share, you can never avoid them fully. So this was a very unusual 1% risk, like, because if you think about it, if the loan wouldn't have been due that fall, there wouldn't have been an issue. We would have gotten through a year without cash flow, it would have been just fine the next year most likely, right? So it's a lot of, like, it's almost like when you have a plane crash, like, not one problem, but, like, several things have to line up, like, the perfect storm, so to speak. So... Um, long story short is that um, there's always 1% risk and just be cognizant of that because diversification is absolutely key when you invest. And this is a great example of why that's important. Um, and number two is that um, the, one of the lessons I learned from that was that um, it's always best if you can to invest with a wealthier operator than an operator who doesn't have quite the same net worth because they can fix, choose to fix problems if, um, if they cho choose that other people can't choose to fix because they don't have the net worth to back it. And so this also applies to avoid cash calls and other things that can happen if the operator is able to actually provide a loan instead of having to go to investors for a short-term loan for some unexpected cost, et cetera, et cetera. So um, always, if it's, if it's uh, possible, it's just a, it's a kind of a plus if somebody's high net worth. I don't consider a requirement, but it's a really nice plus. Then on top of that, it's not just that somebody has to have the net worth but they actually have to have the uh, abundance mentality like we talked about, right, to make that decision to actually say, we feel really bad. We're already coming out of pocket for a partial recourse loan, but now we're actually going to come out of pocket and help the investors that, you know, we feel bad about. And so you could have a really high net worth operator who says, look, I'm sorry, but this, this was unforeseen. It's not our fault. And we lost the building. I'm sorry. They, even if they had all the money in the world to cover it, they could choose not to. So that's the philosophy that we talked about before, where that's why you want to try to understand who you're dealing with and their mentality, because, again, they were only going to be able to make that decision if they had the network, but they had to be the philosophy to make that decision to begin with. Um, and so, so those, those are some of the learnings. It was a very unique situation, and one of my favorite stories, because it's so unique. Tell me a little bit about 
For Investors by Investors? Sure. So For Investors by Investors is a nonprofit that I co-founded with one other person back in 2007. And the, the reason why we started that is because um, I mentioned before, networking is really key when you're looking at these opportunities. So between 02 and 07, which is 02 was the first year I started investing in these opportunities, I spent a ton of time networking all over LA, going to a ton of public uh, meetings. And um, unfortunately, a lot of those meetings were sales pitches and they're often selling books, tapes, or seminars uh, or upselling or whatnot in these meetings. And so I would go to them still. And often if I knew it was going to be a sales pitch, I'd sit in the back of the room, do work and um, for like two hours on my phone and with papers I would bring. And then at the end, I would then go network with everybody to get that networking effect I talked about. <laughs> and um, once I left the corporate world, I remember the first meeting I went to after the corporate world for networking, I sat down and it was a sales pitch. And I said to myself, oh man, I don't have work to do. I've got to sit through this two hour sales pitch now. Like I actually have to sit here and listen to this. And so I said, all right, well, you know, I could use these two hours to actually run my own meeting instead of where there is no sales pitch. And so the core foundation of for investors by investors and why we named it for investors by investors, because it's run by investors for investors. There's absolutely no sales pitch. That's the core foundation. We actually lose money off of it every year. We try to break even, but we just can't quite manage that with insurance costs and other things. Hmm. And, but it's still manageable. We're helping a lot of investors, which is great. And um, they're basically public uh, real estate investor meetings monthly, in, so mostly in Southern California. Uh, we have probably about six or seven chapters at the moment. We've had as many as about 13 at once in the past. And we have uh, over 30,000 uh, registered users. So we, we're the largest series of public um, non-institutional real estate meetings in California. Best way to reach me is through email, which is uh, jroll, which is J-R-O-L-L, at Roll Investments, which is R-O-L-L Investments with an S, uh, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Great. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Appreciate your time. At the end of each interview, our guest is asked to go back in time to mentor their 20-year-old self. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? And I want you to go backward into time. Give yourself one book that you think will be valuable for a 20-year-old Jeremy Roll. A warning that's based off of some mistakes that you've made in your professional life. And a piece of advice about investing that you wish you had known earlier in your life. So a book, a warning, and a piece of investment advice. Okay. So the book would be, without a doubt, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Cashflow Quadrant. Um, and the reason behind that is because I think it just, it can really change your perspective on having a job versus not having a job, how the world works from that perspective and why it can be very powerful to look to generate cash flow and other things versus looking for the paycheck. I think it can completely change someone's mindset and it's quite, it's not a long book and it's really easy to read. Um, the warning is, um, don't worry as much about your resume as trying to figure out what you really want to do. Um, and it's very easy for me to say that now, but I was hell bent focused on like, I got an MBA from Wharton, which is a fantastic school. And that was a resume builder as well as educational. Obviously I actually got these jobs at these big companies from a resume standpoint, building standpoint. And in the end of the day, I found my true passion is something that had nothing to do with the corporate world. Hmm. Right. So I built a lot of great experience and I learned a ton in the corporate world is invaluable. But at the same time, if I could have given myself, that advice at 20. That's what I would give my warning for. And then what was the third piece? Sorry. Uh, just a piece of investment, whether it's real estate or otherwise, a piece of investment advice that you wish you had when you were 20. Piece of investment advice. 
Um, I would say think very long term. Um, I have learned that. And, you know, I think a lot of people who are either trying to get out of the corporate world or trying, we're going to very young, trying to make as much money as quickly as possible. But I realize this is a long term game, uh, especially on the cash flow side. It is a snowball that grows slowly, but eventually becomes very large if you give it enough time and enough focus. But you've got to give it enough time, be really patient, and be very calculated and careful. Um, and so, um, for me, um, the very long-term focus has been extremely helpful. And even to today, I, I actually very much looking forward to 10, 20, 30 years from now and where I'm going to end up, not two years or five years from now. Um, and so um, that, that's another piece of advice I definitely would have given myself. So we hope you gained something from today's guest. Now, feel free and talk about what you learned from the conversation on the comments section of this podcast on the Real Estate Time Machine website. So I asked today's guests to share more about their personal philosophy, the big idea that drives their life and work. We'll post those deep thoughts at the end of the week on Philosophy Friday, only on the Real Estate Time Machine.